Welcome back to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. Usually I'm here with Dr. Brian Goff and Dr. Jenny Lejeune, but today I get a one-on-one with Lindy West, and I'm sort of over the moon, Lindy. It's so good to see you. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. Lindy is a writer, a comedian, an activist, and she's the author of the essay collection Shrill Notes from a Loud Woman. She's a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times, and her most recent book, The Witches Are Coming. Oh, my God. (laughs) Everybody else said, she's so much more angry in this one, and I was like, yeah, she's so much more pointed and right in this one. Oh, thank you. Yeah, one of your essays was talking about God. You can't. You can't get up. You actually have to have some action that's going to move us towards something that's better than what we have now. Yeah, I think that we all do, especially those of us who have relative privilege and power. We don't. We can't give in to that real luxury of of having the option of just of just giving up and and feeling hopeless because. Um, we are not the ones who are going to suffer first. You know, we're, we're sort of on the brink of this global catastrophe. And, um, you know, well-off white people in America uh, are not sort of on the front lines of, of climate catastrophe. And it's the least that we can do to be conscious and be aware and be, you know, believe that that there's a future for this planet and believe that there are, are actions that we can take to change the future and to to build the kind of world that we want um because if we don't if we don't believe that that's possible then it definitely isn't yeah and it, and it gets back to this uh, something else that you've written about quite beautifully in, in terms of the culture of nihilism came about, especially with kids of the 90s, because a lot of what they saw represented in pop culture was that people who were activists, people who took to the streets were really made fun of. Yeah. I mean, this is I, I write about this a lot in the book, I guess. <laughs> um, I guess I'm I have kind of a, a chip on my shoulder about it, you know, uh, I I remember it being very stigmatized to care about anything at all in the 90s, you know. Um, I didn't call myself a feminist until I was in college because it wasn't cool to, I guess, want equal rights, <laughs> you know. I didn't want to be that kind of annoying, tedious girl. Jeez, getting paid the same? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Who wants that? Right, totally. Yeah. I just want boys to like me. Right. Boys don't like girls who get paid the same. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think that... That's reflected a lot in the kind of, in the media that I consumed growing up. You know, um, I write about the Lisa Simpsons and the um, Jesse Spanos and all these female characters who cared about things and who tried to be activists in various directions and were made, you know, the butt of every joke on the show. Like uh, it, it's. That gets through to kids, yeah. Um, and I write a lot of. I write a lot in the book about South Park. Um, there's a whole chapter <laughs> about my feelings about South Park, <laughs> um, which is a, a very funny show, or at least it was. You know, I, I think I watched. I watched it when it was first on, so I watched. Maybe I got through the first six seasons or something. I watched a lot of South Park, um, and everyone did when I was in my teens and and early twenties. Because that's how long it's been gone. I'm how long it's been on. I'm almost forty years old now. Yeah. Um. And so much of South Park is like the ethos of South Park. And I know that South Park fans would make fun of me for even suggesting that a comedy show has an ethos, but it does. Yeah. Everything does. Everything's made by a person who has something to say in no one doubt. direction or another. And even claiming that you have nothing to say about the state of the world 
is saying something. I think um, it's really in- incredible what you said, Lindy, about both these guys are Republicans or Libertarians, Republicans with sunglasses on. Yes, thank you <laughs> for that line. Um, because there is a message they're driving there, which is anybody that has a strongly held point of view is kind of crazy. And really, we should just probably ignore them. Because yeah. what do they know? I mean, I, I'd, I, I wouldn't call them really conservative. You know, I think that they're this kind of like middle of the road, rich white guy who thinks it's annoying to have to listen to activists whine about problems that don't affect them. Right. And it's so much easier to say, I mean, this is a, a, a thing that they, that I quote in the book. can't remember which one of them, um, Trey Parker or Matt Stone, but one of them was like, and this is something you, that I've heard from many, many straight white guys. Like, no, look, I, I think... I think the 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 far left and the far right are ju- are equally bad. Both sides are equally tedious, equally bad. Um, I hate both of them. Sometimes I hate the far left even more than the far right because they're so irritating. And it's like the far left and the far right are not equally bad. Both yeah. sides are not equally bad. It, it's so destructive to claim that, for example. <laughs> Putting children in cages versus not putting children uh-huh. in cages yeah. are equally annoying, destructive points of view. Yeah, let's talk about extremes, right? Right, and yeah. the idea that there that there is some middle ground between those two things, you know, that we can have some kind of compromise, or that you know, staying out of it and being irreverent is some kind of um, justifiable political stance is is so damaging because yeah. what we really need we need people to be look I understand that you think the far left is over serious um and and corny but we need people to be over serious and corny because there are millions I mean billions of people on this planet in immediate jeopardy I mean god remember south park like <laughs> uh south park did a whole episode making fun of al gore for right. warning us about climate change, yeah. you know, and obviously everyone's allowed to have made mistakes in their past. Yeah. But the idea that, you know, a comedy show can have no consequence, a comedy show watched by millions and millions of of young people who are trying to orient themselves in the political discourse and figure out who they are and what they believe, the idea that their favorite show that touches on politics in pretty much every episode could have no bearing on their on their lives and their choices is just ludicrous. Of yeah. course it does. You know, I loved um, when you were talking about the way that comedy is changing and that especially older white comedians are really complaining. It's, it's so hard. No, it's so PC. It's so difficult. Maybe it is time to usher in a brand and new generation of comedians who can have humor that's funny without marginalizing people so dramatically. Right. And that generation's already here. I mean, if you look at all the all of the best comics working right now, um, they're young people of color, queer people, trans people, women, and it's incredible. And they're not just, you know, they're not like diversity hires or, you know, PC, uh, you know, this sort of like... Um, PC culture warriors being foisted upon us. They're the people making the best, funniest, most innovative, most brilliant comedy. And um, I just, you know, I don't think that that 
Jerry Seinfeld or, you know, comedians of previous generations have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. Uh-huh. You don't you don't have to to try to catch up or try to learn anything or adjust your thinking. But you don't get to be mad when young people don't relate to your comedy or are alienated by your comedy. Like, I'm sorry, you know, Dave Chappelle doesn't get to be mad if rape victims are alienated by his Michael Jackson material. Right. That's just they, – they just are. And yeah. you made that and you put it out in the world and you chose not to listen or to actively reject the discourse. And what's sad about it is that Dave Chappelle is an incredible comedian oh, so good. Who ha- who's so good and there's – a lot of material in his Netflix specials that's f- incredibly good. Right. And what he's doing, and and I don't mean to single out Dave Chappelle because he's by far, for, he's far from the only person doing this, but, um, you know, he's, he's choosing to date his material, to make it obsolete, and to make it so that all of the good stuff in there is not... Um, it becomes not watchable because yeah. people because audiences are alienated by the material that you know we've been discussing for years yeah. is is hurtful it, and like, it just feels so tired it's you know? so tired yeah. and and it's and what's really sad is like no we don't we don't want to get rid of you we want to keep you right. like we want you we want to be able to watch your comedy and to love you the way that we always have yeah. and i don't know why so many um older male comedians choose obsolescence. It's such a wonderful point, Lindy, because when I was watching him, I was thinking, there is nobody whose timing is better. He's so meticulous. He is so good. His, like, just his tonal quality and the way that he delivers his lines is, like, unprecedented. Yeah. And yet, I can't imagine a single person not being offended. It's just really, it's really alienating, and it's not necessary because... We've been having these conversations now for a very long time. Yeah. And and obviously, I'm not here to make laws about what comedians can and can't joke course, about. Yeah. It's just we're just we're giving you some data. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, huge swaths of your potential audience are alienated by material that is transphobic, that is um, that is sexist, that is misogynist, that is racist, um, that is for, rapist. Yeah, you know, for if if you're an older white male comedian doing racist material, yeah, you can go ahead and do that if you want. But everyone who feels uncomfortable, um, who's made uncomfortable by, by racism, uh, particularly in this climate where we have a, a racist administration making racist laws. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, the stakes are are real and uh-huh. people actually care. And you can choose to be thoughtful about that or not. But if you choose not to, we don't have to come see your show yeah. or book you at our college right. or, or, you know, support you unconditionally. And yeah. that's how all art works. That's you exactly know, it's right. an art form and and it and it's open to critique like any other. Actually, it's how commerce works too. Absolutely. You know? So, I want to uh the the focus of this show is always about um behavioral health and and offering psychological tools for people and I have been so such a huge fan of what you've done um for body acceptance. I want to go back to early Lindy, if you would, and and tell me what it was like growing up as a young woman in Seattle um, when you see yourself, and and I'm thinking, so you're 40, you were growing up in the 80s and 90s, and that was still very much the bombshell Farrah Fawcett uh, Mm -hmm. was the epitome of beauty. 
Yeah. We didn't have Beyonce. We didn't have other models of beauty. So what was some of the uh, breakthrough moments for you when you decided you were not going to indulge in self-hate? I mean, it was it was pretty late. <laughs> you know, I would say not till my mid to late 20s that I wow. really started, you know, climbing out of that pit because it's so um, it's just so ubiquitous. You're just so inundated in this idea that there's only there's only one way to be valuable. Um, and it's through this one very, very narrow, specific beauty standard um, that say, you know, you could that's a that's a white beauty standard. Um, yeah. You know, obviously, like as a white woman, I, I I at least got to see people who looked somewhat like me presented as as the sort of ideal, even though my body was all wrong. Um, and, and it's it's really toxic, and it's just so transparently for profit. You know, uh-huh. um, these are this is a billion dollar industry, the beauty industry um, and the diet industry, my God, um, that are selling you a version of perfection that is absolutely unattainable and impossible, impossible yeah. so that every single woman on Earth spends her whole life chasing it and spending all of her time and all of her money and all of her energy. I think that saps our political power yeah. in a real, uh, you know, a very real way. It's so cynical and so just blatantly just designed to steal from us. And so, I, you know, I think I started I started kind of thinking about that maybe in my teens, but it wasn't until I got into my 20s and started, you know, looking at, at fat positivity blogs on the Internet sort of secretly in my bedroom in the middle of the night and looking at just pictures of, of fat women who had – you know, fashion blogs like they're they're wearing a cute outfit and they're smiling. And I started to be like, could oh, could I wear a cute outfit cool. and smile? <laughs> so, so this is interesting to me because I actually thought you were one of the first. I thought you were actually one of the first pioneers to begin blogging about, look, this is my body. This is how I am. Take me or leave me. But this is who I am. I'm not making apologies. Who else was before you? I mean, there were fat activists. um, you know, fighting for for fat visibility and fat liberation since the 70s and probably earlier. Um, I mean, there's a woman named Marilyn Wan who wrote a a really influential book um, called Fat So, Fat, exclamation point, so, question mark. Oh, interesting. There are... are absolutely, like, generations of activists who came before me. Um, And... But, I mean, I think I... I think that because... I had this particular platform where I didn't start I didn't start my career as an activist blogging about being fat. I started as a film critic. Yeah. Um at a at a weekly newspaper in in Seattle called The Stranger. So I had this sort of platform already of, of people who who liked me cuz they thought I was funny, you yeah. know, and they they I had sort of fans. I had a base of readers already and I had never written anything about my body. And then um in maybe 2010 2011, 2000, I can't remember, 2011, I think, I wrote this this post on the stranger's blog called Hello, I'm Fat. And it was this, you know, very long kind of manifesto about, like, I'm not going to play this game anymore. I'm not going to... Um, it, it's not doing me any good to to wait for my life to start. You know, we, we mm-hmm. teach people that, that their life can't start until they lose weight or until they achieve this one one particular kind of body. And I, and I wrote this post that was like, I'm not going to do that anymore. Wow. I want my life to start now. And it did. Um, and I think the fact, you know, I think that that impacted a lot of people, um, 
just I don't know whatever gift I have for communication resonates with with certain people and also bringing that like just dropping that fat manifesto in the context of this you know just week regional weekly newspapers blog alongside the news and the movie reviews and everything else we post on the blog um I think it it kind of um really shocked a a, a wide-ranging audience into attention, you know, who wouldn't have maybe sought out, you know, previous work about fat liberation. But I, by you know, in no way started this movement. I, I, I played my own little part that I'm really proud of. Yeah. But there are so many people who who were writing about this before me. Even though you've done all of this work around self-acceptance, um, do you still have those days where you get up and go, "Oh God, I feel so fat." Oh, I mean, well, I I am fat every day, <laughs> so I. But but you know how it feels in your body, right? When right. You're carrying more fluid, and you're like, you just, it's just like it's not really working for you in a way that you can feel beautiful. And this is what I want to get to. I think that people feel like, well, Lindy's got it figured out, and Lindy never has those days where right. she's where she's not feeling like she's as beautiful as she could be. How do you cope with those days? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, I have those days all yeah. the time. Everyone does. Exactly. Um, and I think, I mean, luckily, a, a lot of the work that I've done is to separate my value as a person from my my quote unquote beauty. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that's a really, really important step um, because truly beauty is subjective and it's not, it's, 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 it's constructed um, and it has no bearing on your value as a person. But of course, at the same time, I still we all live inside of this system. So I I get it. Um, and I and you you know, you want to be accepted by the system, even if you know that the system is is toxic. Like yeah. on some level, it's so hard to resist that pull. So um I don't know what I do. What do I, I mean? You just got to make it through the day. It, I, I think that I've just I've gotten to the point where, you know, even if I wake up and it feels like none of my clothes fit, and I I had a, like an ankle injury for two years where I was limping for so long, and then it messed up my hip, and then it messed up my yeah. back, and I got to this point where I felt really immobilized, and I was like, I couldn't move, I couldn't exercise in the ways that I wanted to, and it was it was really um, debilitating and demoralizing. And um, I eventually, like, finally went to the podiatrist and got, like, uh, orthotics. Shout out to Dr. Hale. Um, <laughs> that have totally, like, miraculously fixed my whole body, and I'm so excited. <laughs> um, but, you know, that was a really hard time where yeah. it wasn't even so much about, uh, oh, I'm ugly. Um, it was like I, I just felt like I couldn't. It was really hard to see, like, what is the future for me in this body if I can't mm. – I don't know. Um, no, that's a, it's a beautiful sentiment, and it's one that every one of us, as we age, have to accommodate. Yeah. That, that you have fewer outlets for whatever angst or energy or something that you need to, like, express in the world. Yeah. And that eventually we have to be okay with just kind of sitting yeah, and whatever, you know, whatever it is that we can do or what, you know, because I I also don't want to make some directive that everyone has to first of all be happy in their body every day. That's not realistic and that's why body positivity is a kind of problematic or compl- complicated concept. Yeah. It's just another standard to fail at. <laughs> um, but 
you know, the idea that is so true. <laughs> what you just said is sort of at the at the crux of what I want to get to. Yeah, because I think we're fed, especially on our Instagram feeds, with that, you know, like I'm the boss lady, put my crown on. I feel like, and the the truth is, no, you don't. Yeah, and that's fine. <laughs> I guess what I I guess what I'm trying to say is that on those days, I just let myself feel that and try to go about my life and do the things that that make me feel fulfilled and and um and and or sit in bed and feel sad. You know, that's okay too. We yeah. don't the idea that we all have to feel great every day and a lot of people live in bodies that are painful that hurt yeah. them every day and that are that make their lives really complicated and you don't have to feel positively about your body every day. And and also I feel like I should say um when, when I say like I, I felt immobilized and I didn't know what the future was for me in this in this body, I mean that's a reality for a lot of people who do have really vibrant um you know there there are people who don't have free range of of movement in many ways who, right. who live absolutely um fascinating vibrant Stephen Hawking. Yeah, exactly. Talk. So, you right. know, I don't yeah. mean to say that that having my ankle hurt. <laughs> no, but it's a great example of what we all face different limitations. Some will be physical, some will be emotional. Depression and anxiety can make you feel as if you literally cannot move. Yeah. Um and and being able to actually sit with those feelings, try to understand the genesis of where this self-talk is coming from, and then moving to the next place was, okay, and now how do I express my values for what I really care about? Yeah. What I really care about is being kind to my partner and getting my daughter off to school. And so let's move toward that next thing. Yeah. I, re- I really love that distinction, Lindy. I think it's really amazing. Um, the other the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is, is there is a, I mean, they they call it fat acceptance, right? Mm-hmm. Why does it need to be, why does fat need to be characterized as something that needs to be accepted any more than just like gender or um, our differences in how we view one another as human beings? Was it because it was discriminated against for so long that you single out fat as rather than body acceptance, fat acceptance? Well, I think I think body acceptance is incredibly important, too, because obviously people's bodies are marginalized in in so many different ways, Um, you know, based on race, based on gender, based on size, based on age, based on ability. So uh, body acceptance, body and, and more specifically body liberation has a huge amount of value and is really important to talk about. I just think that it's more like when we start getting into body positivity, which is very much this sort of Instagram friendly um, sort of branding at this point where it's like a white, uh, like an hourglass figure, cute white girl who's maybe a size 16 in her cute bathing suit, which absolutely has value. If I had had access to Instagram with a bunch of cute size 16 babes in their bathing suits when I was 16, that would have totally changed my life. But it's really important to remember that that's not the finish line of anything. Right. And that's why I think a lot of, you know, fat people um, and fat activists try to to reframe at least body positivity uh, as fat liberation because it's really important to not – it's really easy to lose sight of um, the fact that fat people face 
employment discrimination. Yeah. Fat people uh, have poorer access to medical care. I mean, if you read the studies about anti-fat bias among medical students and medical professionals, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, and, you know, beyond just not being able to find clothes, which is in itself a pretty debilitating problem if you, for example, have a job interview tomorrow and have nothing to wear, I can't go to a brick and mortar store yeah. and buy and have at least, I mean, maybe I could find something to wear to a job interview, but I would have maybe one choice. And that it does, it, it does impact your life in some really tangible ways. But also, um, it's just important that people not forget because I think people are so afraid of of fatness. They're so afraid of becoming fat. Um, fatness is so stigmatized. People don't want people people don't want to sit next to a fat person on a plane. People don't want to touch a fat person. Um, you know, and it's so pathologized and so stigmatized that I think it's really tempting to overlook all of those real systemic issues, those real issues of discrimination that are life and death for a lot of people. Mm. Fat people die because their doctors don't take their symptoms seriously and just tell them to lose weight. I mean, that's essentially what happened with my ankle. I went to the doctor and I said, I can't walk. And she said, well, you should, she said, well, Weight Watchers has an app. You should lose weight. And also here are some stretches that you can do. And then I eventually went to the podiatrist and got an x-ray and I had like I have a massive bone spur, not even from not from being fat, but because I twisted my ankle three years ago. Yeah. You know, it's like and that wasn't a life or death situation, but did it it absolutely destroyed my quality of life in certain ways yeah. for years. Of course, yeah. Um, and and I live in Seattle. I have a pretty, I have an extremely privileged life. Um, I, I'm not, I'm a white person. I am taken more seriously by doctors. Uh, my pain is taken more seriously than the pain of, of people of color. Like there are all kinds of layers of systemic issues here. But yeah, I think, I think people really want to sort of reframe body positivity as like an aesthetic movement. Mm. And it's a social justice movement. There and that's go. why I say fat liberation as opposed to body positivity. But I do think that keeping an eye on body liberation as a whole, as an intersectional movement where we are thinking about race and we're thinking about class and gender and ability and age is is hugely important as well. Yeah. I could talk to you all day. Um, I find the the stuff that you write about how we have been willing to lie to ourselves to be so deeply resonant and so powerful. It's as if facts no longer matter. Yeah. How do you deal with it when facts no longer matter? It's terrifying. I mean, and yeah. I don't know the answer, you know? I mean, I wrote this book, which is essentially like that's the core of the book, that we have to live in the truth because the current administration actively is suppressing the truth and spreading disinformation, spreading chaos um, and confusion and nonsense, <laughs> you yeah, know, right. weaponized nonsense. Yeah. And, um, you know, the Republican Party uh, has proven itself although we knew this already but it's it's they've they've truly <laughs> come into their their finest hour oh, yeah. um as <laughs> as an absolutely morally bankrupt um uh you know scam mm -hmm. i mean it, it they're they're liars they're con artists you know they're it's the idea that somehow we're going to get out of this by engaging in debate with Republicans, that we need to bridge this partisan divide and find some middle ground. You can't find a middle ground with 
people who are engaging in bad faith, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's not a sincere conversation. It's disingenuous. It's not real. They, you know, the fact that the the party of family values has become the party of grab them by the pussy tells you everything you need. Yeah. You know, how, I'm sorry. There is there is not a real ideological conversation happening here, and I don't know the answer. But it, the answer, at least for me, is to use my platform to. Not and if there's one thing that I'm good at, it's not caving to people who are trying to shut me up and trying to tell me, convince me that I'm wrong, that my ideas are bad, um, in bad faith. Obviously, I am open to good faith critique and I'm grateful for it, but you can smell it when this is a person who's just trying to shut you down and muddy the waters, muddy the truth. So, all you know, what I say in this book is that. We got to keep telling the truth. You have to insist on the truth every every second. And uh, I also think, not to ramble for too long, um, and again, I don't know. You know, part of my whole shtick is that I'm I'm not an expert. I'm not a policy expert. I'm not really an expert in anything. I am a human being who is experiencing and processing this moment in history along with everyone else mm-hmm. and trying to make sense of it and figure out my place, figure out what I can do to build the kind of world that we that we all claim to want. Um, and so <laughs> maybe I'm wrong about this, but all my instincts tell me that if there's one thing that we can do on the left to move forward is to actually stand for something, mm-hmm. you know, to to fight for universal health care, give people health care, give people a place to live. There shouldn't be homeless people dying on the streets of Seattle where the two richest people in the world live and pay no state income tax. I mean, it's just wild. Uh, and we've been sort of tricked into feeling like, I don't know, that that the the purpose of a society is not to take care of everyone. And of course it is. Of course it is. Otherwise, what's the point? Um, so I just I think that this this idea that the person who's going to win against Trump in 2020 is some sort of like very bland centrist who has found some kind of bipartisan middle ground between uh, between, you know, white supremacy and not white supremacy. I'm sorry. What's the halfway point between white supremacy and not? I feel like not is a pretty all or nothing criteria. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm so glad I let you just go off on that last question. Wendy, such a real pleasure to be with you today. Thanks again for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Bye.